a great day to be in Cleveland. The Browns beat the rival Steelers, and the Guardians are on fire heading to an October run. It's great to, to see sports come back, especially after that just embarrassing Browns loss on Sunday. It's Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and the Plain Dealer for a Friday, first Friday of the fall. And man, the first day of fall, we sure felt like it was fall. And as Lisa said, the lake was not was angry about it, <laughs> not happy to see the coming of fall. Let, I'm Chris Quinn here with Lisa Garvin, Laura Johnson, Layla Tassi. I'm getting ahead of myself. Hope you're all ready for a great fall weekend. Some apple picking for you, Laura. You always do like the the season appropriate exercises. I picked apples last weekend with my daughter. Uh, we've got a big fundraiser for stillbirth research and awareness and Saturday that my sister always organizes. So it's going to be a beautiful day for a 5K. A beautiful day with people wearing long pants and jackets. It's amazing. Last week it was 85. This week it'll be 65. You know, we had promised that we had studied the weather. And the fourth weekend of September is the best odds of being 70s, sunny and dry. And we're not going to hit it. And, you know, that's Zachary Smith has a story that's going up just it'll be up by the time people get this podcast but that's what it is it's like the search for the perfect september weekend because we promise that you know, this is like cleveland reward for living through winter and we drop in from the you know an 87 high i think on wednesday straight to the 60s this weekend i'll take it it's beautiful let's enjoy it and let's begin I don't understand it, but a group of Cuyahoga County officials are hell-bent on buying a toxic site for the new Cuyahoga County Jail, and they've used no end of tactics to get their way so far without success. Layla, they rolled out another one yesterday that's kind of dopey. What was it? So the latest chapter in the story here is that during a presentation to Council's Public Safety and Justice Affairs Committee, the, the business services manager for the sheriff's office told council members that the, the county has lost about $5 million on its agreement with the city of Cleveland to house the city's inmates since 2019. And she says that's because the agreement dictates a $99 per inmate, per diem reimbursement rate when when she says that that rate should be more like $165 a day, given that the county houses a daily average of 61 inmates from the cities from the city down from 69 in 2021. And, and the fact that the county hasn't been able to successfully negotiate with the city for a 2% increase in reimbursements, that shortfall adds up to a loss of about a million dollars per year is what is what she said. So this news stirred a frenzy among the council members who were calling for ways to rectify what they see the, as an in, unbalanced and untenable situation. But then Councilman Mike Gallagher took it a step further, hinting at the possibility of separating the jails again, because, of course, the county started housing Cleveland's inmates in 2018 when the city closed its jail. And he said, it seems to me that this is a no-win situation. I think there comes a time when you just have to call it. And if the city's inmates are housed elsewhere, then that means the city likely wouldn't have a seat at the table for planning the new jail. So is Bingo. this a, yeah, right. So is this a strategy to strip city representation from that process because law director Mark Griffin has suggested that he's not fully supportive of the plan to spend all that money on a new jail complex is the question. Well, 
if it were anybody but Gallagher, I would suggest this is an honest enterprise, but he is the guy that's been working in the background to get that toxic site. All of the city officials on the steering committee, if they, you remove them for the vote, would change the whole whole makeup. The, and it's just amazing to me that they keep trying these tactics to buy a site so toxic that the state wouldn't build a prison there. And I should say, the same chemicals that they found on that site are the ones they found at Camp Lejeune. Now, you can't open the Plain Dealer these days without seeing another law firm looking for people that were stationed at Camp Lejeune so that they can sue to get money because they're exposed to toxins, which is exactly what would happen here. Here's the problem, though, with what the card Gallagher plays is Cleveland has all the aces. We looked at this in 2018. There was a lawsuit in Toledo that went through an appellate court, went to the Ohio Supreme Court, which declined to hear the appeal. That says if a city stops charging misdemeanor defendants under city ordinances and charges them under state law, the county pays everything. So if if they tried to jack Cleveland, Justin Bibb could say, you know what? I'm not even going to give you the 99 bucks anymore. We're going to charge people under state law, and then you've got to pay for it pre-trial and post-trial. Good luck with that. Right. I mean, it is crystal clear if you read the Toledo versus Lucas County lawsuit. There's no doubt about it. So, so the city is actually being somewhat benevolent here. Look, we should point out the city, if it charges under city ordinances, gets all the fines and costs. But that doesn't, if you did a cost benefit analysis, cities losing money here. If they stopped paying the, the county and didn't get the fines, they'd be ahead, I'm sure. So for Gallagher to threaten that, they could have the, the bear trap jaws snap on their heads and set them back, not a million, but millions. How foolish is that? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, it sounds like the, the topic did briefly come up uh, th that that this would, that that would trigger that you know, that that would trigger that response potentially. And that Gallagher was kind of like, we shouldn't be held hostage by that or something along those lines. <laughs> so we're gonna, we're gonna open that can of worms in a subsequent story, I think, just to look at look at that case that you're talking about and what implications it has for this new development here. When we looked at it in 2018, I think it was still pending before the Supreme Court that the, the appellate court had ruled this way. It was, and really, it was the, it's one of those very clearly written opinions. You don't have to dig deep in it um, because that's when Armin Budish was trying to make all the little police departments pay that. And they were saying, no, 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 that's not on us. They're, those are Cleveland prisoners. We're just we're just helping out here. And it was a big, big fight. And in the background was with Cleveland and these other departments was this threat. Like you saw that lawsuit, right? Mm -hmm. You, you could be on the hook. Look, it's the county's responsibility to run a jail. That's, that's part of their job. And so it's not on cities to pay for everybody they send. We pay county taxes. They're supposed to have a jail. They're supposed to care and feed the prisoners. I'm amazed the county council members are so uneducated on this issue that they would make this threat because it creates a huge risk to them for a major budget hit. But I, but again, Layla, they've tried everything to get to, 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 to blackmail people into buying this toxic site. Why? We're in the last hundred days of Armin Budish's administration. Chris Renan and Lee Weingart will not build a jail on that site. So why is Gallagher and company so intent on buying that site? Do you have any idea? No, 
I don't know. We ask this question every day. Don't know. Wow. Okay. Well, it'll be interesting to see if they try and play their cards because in this case, the city has the winning hand. It's today in Ohio. What's the background of the woman who will replace Akram Boutros as Metro Health CEO when he steps down at year's end? Laura, we talked about this a little bit yesterday, but now it's time to talk about it in depth. Right. I wasn't here yesterday, so I didn't get to weigh in. Um, So she is a nurse, a fourth generation nurse, which just warms my heart and and makes me so happy. Um, Her name is Erica Steed. She's the executive vice president and system chief operating officer of Sinai Chicago Health System. That system is devoted to caring for the poor and different disenfranchised. And she's nationally recognized in all sorts of lists as a top healthcare leader who promotes innovation and large scale strategic initiatives. She's credited with improving finances at Sinai Chicago despite the pandemic. And she's only 44. This just floors me, like the amount that she has achieved so much so far in her career. And she takes the reins at the end of this year at a time when Metro Health is going to expect to be taking in a lot more patients from St. Vincent Charity Medical Center that's closing. Yeah, I, I mean, this is a, a very different direction, which is smart. When you replace a, a kind of a a change agent like Akram Boutros. He came into town. The place was falling apart. The budget was upside down. There were all sorts of ethical questions about how they did business. He turns it around. He builds these new campuses. It's been a pretty much a raging success under him. When you're changing gears there, what do you do? Because you, you don't want somebody to just step into his shoes because can they? She's got a whole different background and perspective and could could do some very interesting things with patient care. Absolutely. And that's what she said. She said people are her number one concern. She is concerned with the patients and the people who work for Mector Health. And I think that fits with her history as a nurse. She said she was drawn to the focus on health equity. She said the pace of Metro Health is actually multiple steps of, ahead of what Chicago has been able to do. And she's said she felt the difference in the engagement that she's going to be able to make. So she really welcomed this uh, focus. And obviously, she's got a lot more to oversee that's just coming on board here. So the Metro Health is continuing its $1 billion campus transformation project that's complete, supposed to be completed in 2025. In October, they're opening the 11th floor Glick Hospital on the main campus and also the 112-bed Metro Health Cleveland Heights Behavioral Health Hospital. Yeah. What was interesting, too, because we said you've got a pretty big job in Chicago. What mm-hmm. What is it about this that attracted you. And she said, you know, I've been watching what Melter Health is doing with equity and, and really working for the patients. And I feel like they're multiple steps ahead of where we are. Mm-hmm. And I want to, I want to be a part of that. I think that's the attraction. She's young, she's 44. So clearly this won't be her last stop, I suspect. But you could tell Vanessa Whiting, the board chair at Metro Health, was was on the call when we talked uh, the other day. And you could see she was pretty proud that they went out and got somebody of this standing to be. Did the next she CEO. did she mention how she plans on addressing the nursing shortage? She I didn't hear specifically talk about that when I was on the call. I had to jump off early, and it's not in Julie Washington's story, but we had a great story. I guess you guys talked about it yesterday about, you know, where all the nurses are. And since she is a nurse, hopefully she will be able to address this. And it seems like a lot of the problem is in the pipeline Mm -hmm. of kids getting people into nursing school. There's just not enough 
openings for even for all the applicants. And then it takes, you know, four years to get these people trained. So hopefully there can be a lot of innovation with Metro Health working with all the new heads of all the schools in Cleveland, you know, Tri-C, Case, and Cleveland State to come up with some ideas of getting Mm -hmm. more nurses on the floor quicker. But there are also a lot of nurses who defect from the traditional, Mm -hmm. you know, hospital systems to go work for visiting Mm -hmm. nurse organizations because they're making more money. Right. And, and, you know, my husband who works at the Cleveland Clinic crossed paths with former colleagues who... uh, are now working as visiting nurses, being contracted by the Cleveland Clinic to come work back on the floors where they were just four times what other people get, which is crazy. It's it's very tantalizing for a nurse who has been working, uh, you know, in in the hospital to when they see their former colleagues who are now working on the outside, making more money, coming back to work in the same hospital for a whole lot more money. Um, and and to feel the pressure of of you know you see how you know you we have huge patient loads and you feel mm-hmm. so stressed out and you know for her to come from a nursing background I'm wondering if that sensibility will will put you know her her lens squarely on that issue. Let's hope. I, Let's yeah, hope. But absolutely. we got to move on. It's today in Ohio. Reporter Courtney Astafi has filled in the gaps on the story about Eric Gordon stepping down as Cleveland School's CEO. Lisa, what do we know? I feel like a ball got dropped here after reading the story. But the Cleveland Municipal School District Board was poised to extend Eric Gordon's contract way back in April, but they never followed through, and this is why. Ohio law requires an agreement between the board and the mayor, Justin Bibb, because it's a mayor-controlled school district. But Bibb hadn't spoken to Gordon one-on-one since really since he was elected, and he wasn't ready to decide Gordon's fate back in April. They finally met August 1st, and when Gordon mentioned not taking the extension and spending more time with family. Gordon told Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer that he told colleagues he was leaving months ago, but he only went public with that news very recently, as we know. Uh, Mayor Bibb says that uh, CMSD board chair Ann Bingham never reached out to him about the extension. He said the olive branch was not not extended to him. And he was later asked by Courtney, would he have supported Gordon as CEO back then? He said, well, I won't engage in hypotheticals. But Bibb, you know, when when he came on board and, you know, he wanted to see if Gordon's vision matched with his vision, but he waited like eight months to talk to him one-on-one when the, when the die was already cast. There are a few things going on here. We've been talking about this all week. One is when Bibb campaigned, he was very clear as he knocked on doors that parents were telling him they wanted better education for their kids, that it wasn't getting better fast enough. And he said he he wanted to give them that. He didn't know if it meant a higher reliance on charter schools or, or something in public schools, but that he wanted to, to figure it out. Uh, separately, you have the contract coming to an end for Eric Gordon, who we believe is not that many years away from retiring. Mm-hmm. So it would have seemed like a no brainer that he would do one more extension to get there. Uh, but, but like you said, that they never talked. Now th- that seems like a failing on Bibb's part. Yes. I would have thought that on day one as mayor, because schools are so important, you would have talked to Eric Gordon, Hey, or, or during the campaign, but at least on day one as mayor, 
Eric Gordon, let's get together and talk. You're the guy running the school system. So to say I never heard from the school board president is disingenuous because mm-hmm. you would think the mayor would have would have reached out. But on the other hand, you can't really complain about a guy who says, look, I'm a new mayor. I haven't quite figured out the path yet. I'm not ready to commit to anybody or any plan until I know more. So so even if they had come to him with the extension, he might have held off on it. Meanwhile, Eric Gordon has put in 11 years and he's kind of, I think, burned out. You, If you saw what he said at the state of the school speech this week, he talked about how his phone is on nonstop and he hasn't had a book by his bedside table the entire time. And he's looking forward to the break. Nobody goes 11 years in this kind of a high stress job. So it sounds like there are unrelated things moving in the same direction that caused a whole lot of people to speculate ipso facto and causation. And I'm not sure there is any. I do think there's a breakdown in that Bibb did not reach out to Gordon before August 1st. I agree, which is why I think that ball was dropped. And I understand a brand new mayor wanting to install their own people, but Eric Gordon's record spoke for itself. I mean, he did so much in his 11 years. Why would you want to rock that boat? Well, I, but I, I, but Bib was clear. He was hearing from parents that don't think, as far as the district has come, they want more and they want it faster. Look, Frank Jackson would talk about this all the time, that yes, it's been successful, but it's not being successful fast enough. He was saying that in his final year in office. So so I get it. I, I mean, I, can, I, I think everybody is acting in good faith trying to figure out the path. I just, I just don't get why the new mayor wouldn't have talked to the school CEO multiple times this year. That's what I am wondering. Because he says, you know, I was still early in my tenure as mayor and I hadn't had the chance to have that one-on-one conversation about the future of the district with Eric. I feel like that should have happened week one Mm -hmm. of his time. Because, I mean, what do you do? You come in, you, you count your snow plows. And then you talk to the, <laughs> and then you talk to Eric Gordon. Well, we did. He didn't count the snow. That's right. either, Obviously, <laughs> yeah. I that's the only disappointment. I I I know people who know Eric Gordon, and they're really happy that he's doing this because they worry about him and they think he needs the break. Uh, you know, he could he can reach his retirement by going and working in a different district for a few years, get his PhD, and do some things. But I, I just it's disheartening to hear that the new mayor who says he's focused on education, didn't once have a one-on-one conversation. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's just like, come on, what are you For talking about? That months. should have been job one. You know, I would have thought they would have talked during the race, just to, you know, yeah. get a get a, get a a beat on it. So uh, hopefully there'll be a bigger focus on that as they pick Eric's replacement. Bib certainly did say nice things about Eric Gordon at the State of the School speech. And Eric Gordon was very gracious about his reasons for leaving. But I think Lisa's right. There's at least one dropped ball. I, I feel like we're going to see that photo a lot of Eric Gordon standing next to Justin Bibb. The with prom the photo. Yes, the prom, <laughs> prom photo. <laughs> yeah, they've even got like matching sort of blue suits on. <laughs> okay, it's today in Ohio. 
We've been wondering whether the Deshaun Watson controversy would drive fans away from the Cleveland Browns, and we finally have the numbers for the week one game. I bet a lot more people might have been watching last night because it was a good game. How many people watched game one, and how does that compare to previous seasons, Layla, where we didn't have the anger about the Watson controversy? Well, according to the preliminary figures by Comscore, the game, which aired at 1 p.m. Sunday, September 11th, had a rating of 37.5 with an average audience in the Cleveland market of 459,461 households. So like I said, those are preliminary figures. They could change before they're finalized, but they do match what we have seen during the Browns' week one games from previous seasons. Mm. The September 11th game against the Panthers drew larger ratings share than an average audience than the 2020 week one game against the Baltimore Ravens. And the 2022 week one game also drew similar ratings and audience figures in the local market to those of 2019's week one matchup against the Tennessee Titans. Last year's week one game against the Kansas City Chiefs scored a 41.5 rating and was watched by nearly 535,000 households in the Cleveland market. But that was a bit of an anomaly, it seems, because a rematch of the team's AFC playoff matchup the season before, I mean, that's that, 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 draws a huge audience and it it ran during a primetime spot on TV. So um, still reporter Troy Smith points out that this year's game had its own drama of the Baker Mayfield storyline. So fans no doubt tuned in to see the Browns face him since his departure from the team on, on somewhat bad terms, but I'm not surprised by this. I mean, despite what seemed like outrage over the Deshaun Watson scandal, clearly there are hundreds of thousands, if not millions of Browns fans, and the vast majority of them don't care at all about what awful stuff players do when they're off the field. And if they do care, they made their peace with it in time for game one. I, I well, know lots of fans of them, who fall into that category. And some of them might not want to penalize the other players on the team with their anger at the ownership. But Layla, Lisa, Laura, and Ted Dieden, if he's listening, you all have a moment to say i told you so because you all (laughs) predicted exactly this and we do want to come back and say you were right about that i don't like it i don't like it i (laughs) i think this is terrible that that you know hundreds of thousands still tuned in and are just as excited as ever you know they should have been some protest about it but whatever we but should you penalize miles garrett and nick chubb Because of something Jimmy and D Haslam did. I mean, that I think that's part of what's going on here is there's a relationship between fans and the players on the team. I mean, nobody's well, a the, fan of the owners. History, their own personal family history. Yeah. It is a hard thing to excise yourself from something that's been a tradition, right? And so our brains are wired to be like, well, but and and go with what feels familiar and comforting to us. Uh, but I'm with you, it, Layla, hearing the NFL um, broadcasters talk last night, I'd be like, well, you know, Kevin Stefanski doesn't even have his actual quarterback. And I was like yelling at the screen because of what he did. Yeah. This was not an injury. Yeah. All right. Got to move on. It's today in Ohio. They've committed to spending more than $50 million on the failed MedMart, even though almost every taxpayer in Cuyahoga County opposed that. They've squandered $66 million in their slush funds. And now our esteemed Cuyahoga County Council says it has no money to renovate the increasingly decrepit Justice Center. Laura, how come? 
I love this wind up. Basically, they're running out of ways to use this income tax that they passed in 2007. So they want to permanently extend this quarter percent sales tax to pay the $2 billion total debt service on the new jail over the next 40 years. That's $750 million on construction and another $1.2 billion in interest. Council saying, we don't want this to go on forever. Hey, maybe we should cap it at 40 years, which still <laughs> sounds like a really long time. Perpetual or 40 years. I mean, for a lot uh, of people, on. that's perpetual. They're not going to make it more than 40 years. You don't think in the next 40 years, they'll come up with something else to say they're going to spend that money on. I mean, this is like the worst budgeting ever. We're like, you're just going to keep passing the buck down the well, line. For yeah. Decades. And it gets more but, expensive every time you pass the buck. Exactly. $1.2 billion in interest. But the other problem is they are getting the money before they actually do know the cost. I mean, they mm-hmm. don't know what the new jail is going to cost because they don't know for sure where they're going to build it. They haven't really done the research on are there ways to save money or the things they can do, which they're even agreeing. We don't. There's a bunch they don't know, which is why Prosecutor Michael Malley says, slow it down. Let's figure it out and figure out what the needs are. So, so, so they're already going to get money without knowing what the bill is, but to, and to say, they, look, they're hearing from taxpayers saying, we don't want a perpetual increase. Lee Weingart has said he'll force that to the ballot if they do it. So they come up with 40 years that that's not really kind of getting at what the taxpayers say, <laughs> but the worst part of this is they are squandering millions and millions of dollars on unnecessary spending while they have this very important need. The courthouse is falling apart. It wasn't that great to begin with. That atrium down there has been leaking in my entire time here. And they they would have had $116 million in their hands if they didn't squander it just on the slush funds in the medical mart. And God knows what else they've been spending stuff on. So to turn around with a straight face yesterday and say, yeah, I, I, you know, I guess we just don't have money for the courthouse. It's, it's, it's People should set their hair on fire. This is ridiculous. You just squandered $116 million on stuff nobody wants. You don't want a dog park? It's just or it's, a golf course clubhouse. It, it I I look at this and and you well the other thing that struck me in that story is there's Dave Wondolowski. Oh, we need the jail. Is that what this is all about? Is to give Dave Wondolowski millions and millions and millions of dollars in contracts for the building trades? Is that why? Yeah, he should not have been the ambassador there talking about that. I'm sorry. He should not have been the one talking at the mic about that. I thought that was a poor choice of don't put him up there. But is that the motive? Is that why the elected officials are doing something that seems so counter to common sense and is so unreasonable and rushing to get this jail plan into place before him in Buddhist leaves office? It's to feed all the money to the building trades who will support them in elections. I mean, that would be disgusting, really. But this is so hard to swallow as a taxpayer because you think they got all of that American Rescue Plan money that's supposed to be transformational. Can you come up with anything much more transformational than like a jail that treats people humanely? 
Yeah, it, it, it's you just look at this government and and realize we're in big trouble. I don't think it was this bad under Jimmy Demora. I mean, I can't believe I'm saying that because it was really bad. They're it, the ones that put that sales tax on us. Just <laughs> just to remind you, they passed the the sales tax in the first place to get us the medical mart. That is the white elephant that we're still talking about fifteen years later. But it didn't last forty years. It wasn't perpetual. Okay. It's today in Ohio. I can't believe we're going to only get to one more story, but it's a good one. It doesn't sound like Cleveland will get out from under its federal consent decree involving the police department anytime soon. Lisa, in how many ways is the department missing the mark and why can't it hold officers fully accountable the way the consent decree monitor believes they should? I think these are questions that the court-appointed monitoring team wants to know. They issued a report yesterday and they found several areas where the Cleveland Police Department is non-compliant and they haven't implemented changes required by the federal consent decree. Uh, team leader Hassan Aden says that they will be pivoting, though, from day-to-day monitoring of the and policy writing and moving towards determining whether policies put in place are actually working. Uh, Aden, I think it's Aiden, I'm probably pronouncing it wrong. He said that they're actually looking for greater sophistication from the city and the police department in self-reporting and transparency in management and accountability. So a few areas that they found need work. There is still pro-police bias and fatal police shooting investigations. Two investigations that they did didn't mention were flagged in particular. And also the Force Review Board. This is a group of top uh, police supervisors that look at the most serious cases of use of force. And they found that uh, it's loaded with supervisors who have this pro-police bias. Use of force incidents are up this year, but why are they so much lower in the second and fourth district? Why aren't they asking this questioning, figuring out why it's lower and what what is making that happen and whether they could leverage that. They also found that use of force incidents, 152 of them were used against black people, only 42 against white people. Also staffing at the office of professional standards is a huge issue. Although their caseloads are down, several officers are retiring or, you know, will retire soon. There's no executive staff. There's no recruitment strategy to replace the former administrator, Roger Smith. He left back in March of 2020 and took a similar job in Phoenix. So they're really going to have to start from scratch with that. And then overall staffing is a problem. More officers are leaving than being hired. Low salaries and poor morale are the most common complaints under why they're leaving. And they say that there's poor coordination between the Public Safety, HR, and Civil Service Commission and they should analyze data to find what does and doesn't work with recruitment and reevaluate their 2017 staffing and deployment plans. Well, I, I think this decree started in 2015 and it was supposed to be five years. We're already two years beyond that. And it sounds like we have a long way to go. Uh, I guess the city, the next step is the city will respond to this, but it doesn't sound like we're anywhere close to closing this thing down. It's today in Ohio. That does it for a Friday. We only talked about six stories. That's really a low one, but they're all hot stories, so they're worth the time. We'll talk about the others next week. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Layla. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Have a great weekend.